Good evening, Grace Church. My name is Joe Berg. I'm a ministry resident here at Grace Church. I hear from my South African friends that I'm somewhat famous in South Africa because of my name. If you don't understand that, you can ask a South African. So tonight, we're going to continue here in our sermon series on the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. Now, I've only been here at Grace for a few short months, but already there is one thing that I really love about this church, and that is that we preach whole books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, slowly but surely, we make it through whole entire books. This is a gift. Now, of course, some books of the Bible are a lot longer than other books. And in fact, the Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. So it's not surprising that it's taken a long time to get through this book at Grace. I asked uh, Ben when the first sermon on Luke was, and he told me it was in November of 2019. That's a, a long time ago. There's been other sermon series, planned breaks from Luke, but it takes a long time to get all the way through the Gospel of Luke, a long book. So why do I bring this up? Well, it's because in this passage before us today that we're at a major turning point in the Gospel. And it's easy when you read a long book to sort of lose track with where you're at. So I want to do a real quick recap um, of where, where we've been, where we're headed in the book, so that we can feel this shift that's taking place in Luke's gospel before us today. So back in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, we read of Jesus' transfiguration, one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. Jesus is on a mountain, and his clothes turn white. God the Father's voice comes from heaven, and two people appear with Jesus talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And it says, Luke records that they were speaking about his departure, Jesus' departure, which is literally Exodus, that he was about, that it was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And then 20 verses later, chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from the end of chapter 9 of Luke, all the way up to what we, the sermon was on last week that ended in chapter 19, verse 27, we've been reading of Jesus's journey up to Jerusalem and reading of the miracles and teachings, the ministry that he did along the way. And it's today, finally, in this text, that Jesus arrives at his final destination in Jerusalem. So if we could set this sermon to music, before us today, the soundtrack would suddenly be shifting to something more serious, somber, maybe more uh, fast-paced. And perhaps you've had the experience before of hearing a movie in another room, you're not seeing the screen, but you know just from the music and what's happening with the music that the story is building. It's reaching its great climatic event. So unfortunately, I can't play an instrument, and so I can't set this to music today, this sermon, but I do hope that as we walk through this passage today, you feel the tension building in the gospel. 
as we move towards the great climax in Jerusalem, which we know is Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. So we have a fairly long section before us today. Just tried to cover verse 28 in this introduction, but we're going to break up the remaining part into four, the remaining verses into four parts. And what I'd like us to do as we go through each section is to focus in on Jesus as Lord, as King, and as prophet. And I hope you'll see, check me, check the text, that you see these titles, these truths about Jesus coming from the text itself, not me forcing it upon the text. So these, looking at Jesus as Lord, as King, and as prophet will be our lenses by which the text, what, what is most important there, becomes clear. So before we do that, before we dive in, let me pray again. Lord, thank you so much for Luke, this man who carefully studied all that Jesus did and said and recorded it for us. And Lord, it is your word. The gospel of Luke is your word. So help us to see Jesus today, to meet him, to hear from him. And Lord, be glorified in this time. Give us help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first section, please look at it with me, verses 29 to 34. And I'm going to read. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So Luke, the writer of this gospel, for him, geography is really important. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, Luke made very plain that he is writing his gospel to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Sometimes Luke is referred to as the first Christian historian. And so it's not surprising that he's pointing out geographical markers all throughout his gospel. So that's what we see here in these few verses we just read. Jesus is nearing the villages of Bethphage and Bethany which is near the Mount, Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And the Mount Olivet stands about 2,600 feet above sea level. It's a long way up from the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth where Jesus was near just recently in the previous chapter in Jericho. So he's made his way all the way up to Mount Olivet. And from Mount Olivet, which is just to the east of Jerusalem, one can see right over to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount, to Mount Zion. So Jesus has arrived in these villages and his final destination is in sight. And so it's while he's outside of these villages that Jesus does something that's a little bit strange, right? He sends two disciples ahead of him into a nearby village to get a donkey or a colt. And he has very specific instructions for his disciples as they go. They're going to find this colt on which no one has ever sat. Upon finding it, they're to untie it and then bring it back to him. 
And Jesus, foreseeing that the owners of this colt are going to wonder what's going on. Hey, you're taking my colt, right? Jesus tells them, say, all you say to them is, the Lord has need of it. Verse 31. So these two disciples set out, as Jesus said, and they find everything, just as Jesus said as well. And they do as they were told. So it's worth asking this somewhat strange text, why does Luke include this in his gospel? You know, there are many, many things that Jesus said and did that we don't have a record of. We don't have in the gospels, but Luke put this story here and it must be for a reason. And I think that the answer to that is found in the answer that these two disciples give to the owners of the cult. They say, the Lord has need of it. So what do I mean? We're seeing here Jesus acting as Lord, someone who's in full control as he heads into Jerusalem, the place we know where he will eventually be arrested and then die, be crucified on the cross. Jesus is acting in submission to his father's will, and he has complete authority over every detail in his life as he heads to the cross on this last week of his earthly life before his resurrection. So Jesus, unlike any powerful Lord in this world, is using his authority and his power to arrange his own death, his crucifixion on the cross. It's amazing. And not only that, he's doing it in submission to the Father's will. He's doing it in such a way that every single scripture, Old Testament prophecy about him is fulfilled just as God said it would be in the Old Testament. So a point of application for our lives here from these few verses. If you are a Christian, one who believes in Jesus and has his spirit, you are a disciple. And as a disciple, whether you realize it or not, you are on your own journey to Jerusalem with Jesus. Now, I hope your end isn't as painful and shameful as Jesus's was, but if you are a genuine Christian, you have picked up your cross and you have started to follow Jesus. That's what it says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Now, the good news is that no matter how difficult, how painful, how perplexing and confusing your journey is with Jesus right now, or may one day become, Jesus is as much in command and control over your life as he was his own. So Jesus, as the Lord of your life, will ensure that even in the smallest details, you have everything you need to glorify God in the life that he's planned for you and in the death that he has planned for you. So Jesus, as your sovereign Lord, is not only protecting you and delivering you from harm and evil, he does that day in and day out and providing what you need. He does that over and over again. He's arranging your life so that you will pass through the suffering that God has appointed for you and that with him, through him, you will triumph as well. So trust in Jesus as your Lord as you journey with him to Jerusalem. So section two, verses 35 and 40, let's keep reading. And they brought it to Jesus, the donkey, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So these disciples, they have the colt, they run back to Jesus, they bring the colt, and immediately this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem begins. And we're seeing here Jesus go from Mount Olives down into the Kidron Valley, and he's going to start making his way up Mount Zion into Jerusalem. And there is one truth about Jesus that is screaming out at us in these verses. I'm sure you see it. And that truth is that Jesus is the king. He's the long-awaited son of David. And I want to draw our attention to three things in these few verses we just read that really make this plain. So first, we have the disciples of, the Jesus, of Jesus spreading their cloaks on the donkey underneath Jesus. Do you see that? And then on the road in front of him as he travels. We read of a similar thing happening back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. And at that time, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, they took off their cloaks and they put them underneath Jehu. And then they declared him king. So it appears in ancient Israel, there's this tradition that when someone is declared king, you take off your jacket, your cloak, and you put it underneath them. So they're declaring Jesus to be king by this action. Second, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey. And many of you probably know this, right? This act of riding on a colt is the direct fulfillment of a prophecy made by the prophet Zechariah 500 years before Jesus was born. It's such an amazing text. Let's read it together. It's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here it is up on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There it is, right? Zechariah said that the king of Israel, king of Jerusalem will come humble and mounted on a donkey. And not only that, look at what Zechariah says they should do in Zion, in Jerusalem, right? They should rejoice and declare that their salvation has come. They're to rejoice greatly. They're to shout aloud as their king comes to visit them. Well, the third thing to point out right here that shows that Jesus is king is the praise of his disciples. Look at verses 37 and 38. We read that the whole multitude of his disciples were rejoicing and praising him just as Zechariah called them to in his prophecy. And not only that, 
As they praise Jesus, they declare that he is king. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And here, the disciples are quoting another Old Testament text. Psalm 118, verse 26. Another scripture being fulfilled as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. And what's interesting here, right, is Jesus isn't calling himself king. It's his disciples. By their actions, by their words, they are rejoicing and praising him as the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem. Well, not surprising, right? The text, we have our old friends, the Pharisees, showing up right at this time. And this is just too much for them. And they tell Jesus, tell your disciples to stop. Tell them to stop calling you king. And what does Jesus say? Verse 40, he says, that's impossible. For even if these disciples are silent, the stones themselves will cry out. Amazing. So applying this to our life. Martin Luther King Jr., famous American preacher, civil rights leader, he famously declared this in one of his most famous speeches. He says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. There's a lot of, maybe don't, it's not so clear what he meant by there, but what he's saying is that the rights for black Americans, it's been a long, arduous, treacherous journey, but those who fight for it will ultimately prevail. Why? Because God has designed everything in the universe to bend towards justice. So I think we can make a connection from that quote to today's text. We can say this, the arc of human history is bent towards praise. Everything, everyone is created to worship God and to praise Jesus. All of history, all of creation is moving towards this great end. And that's the eternal praise of Jesus Christ, who's both Lord and King. And so the question to you, to us this evening is, have you begun to sing? Have you started to learn this song of praise to Jesus? Rocks, hills, trees will one day break out in a song of praise to our God and of his Christ, Jesus. And the question is, will you join them? This is what you're created for. This is what all of the universe is moving towards. So if all this seems strange to you, that's okay. I encourage you to join this class at Aaron's home. Learn more about this Jesus. Read the gospels for yourself, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read what the apostles of Jesus, who were commissioned by him as his witnesses, what they say about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Press in to know this Jesus more. And I pray that you might be surprised that you begin to sing this song of praise to Jesus without even realizing it. It suddenly starts coming up from within. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you're struggling to sing right now of Jesus, I think we can draw out a practical exhortation from this text. And that is this. You may need to check your expectations. If you were here last week, 
uh, Aaron preached and he pointed us to chapter 19, verse 11. Really interesting text. And it says that those who are traveling along with Jesus to Jerusalem were expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. So even as these disciples of Jesus are rejoicing, praising him as king, as they go up to Jerusalem, they have in their hearts certain expectations of Jesus, some that are sinful and unhelpful. They're misguided, right? They're looking, for the, they're looking forward to the ways when Jesus begins to rule that he will make them rich, he will make them happy, and he will make them powerful. It's going to make their life better now. Not in the age to come, that's going to come, but now. So the disciples, many of them, they wanted a Lord of glory, not a crucified king. And so it's not surprising as we make our way in the Passion Week through Luke, that when we get to Good Friday, when Jesus is crucified, we find very few of his disciples standing around him. Jesus didn't meet the expectations of many of the disciples at this time. They wanted a king to be a certain way that they wanted him to be, to do things they wanted him to do, right? And these expectations prevented them from seeing what God was doing and to sing and rejoice. So we ourselves constantly need to go back. What are our expectations that we have of Jesus? Are they right? Are we wanting something now and immediately and God is saying, wait, hold on. As the book of 1 Peter says, we're to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fullness of everything we desire is coming, but it's at the end of the ages, not immediately. So check expectations and let's keep pressing in to Jesus together as a church. Let's keep learning to sing this song together and let's not let stones put us to shame, right? I think we can sing better than stones. I think I, think I can. So section three, verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here we have a real sudden shift, change in the feeling, the emotion as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, right? We just read of his disciples rejoicing, praising God, here comes the king. And Jesus, as he gets near to Jerusalem, begins to weep. Well, why? Well, the answer, as many of you know, is pretty simple. The people of Jerusalem, especially its leaders, are not ready to receive him. The rightful heir of David's ancient throne, King David, in the ancient capital of Jerusalem, he's arrived and it's only the multitude of Jesus' disciples that are rejoicing and praising him. And we know that soon the leaders of the city and then the masses after a few days will reject Jesus and do everything they can to get rid of him, 
to have him crucified by the Romans. Jesus knows this. And so here in these verses, we're seeing Jesus as prophet. He's coming to Jerusalem as king, ready to reign, ready to rule. But since the people, the leaders are not ready to receive him, to bend the knee and to worship, he must stand before them as the prophet, declaring God's coming judgment on the city. So when Jesus says, in verse 43 and 44, look at it. Days are coming when this, an army will surround the city and lay siege to it and then level it completely to the ground. Jesus is prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem that will happen 40 years after his own death and resurrection in Jerusalem. If you ever go to Rome, you have to go and see the triumphal arch that marks Rome's victory over Jerusalem. And you can see they have the pictures of the menorah and the things coming out of the temple. So 40 years after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, just as he said, because they rejected him, God's judgment would come upon the city. So way back in Luke's gospel, chapter two, we met a man named Simeon. And he prophesied of Jesus when he was just a baby, that Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many. And we're seeing this truth start to play out right before our eyes, right? Jesus' disciples, those who rejoice in him, praise him as king, they're promised to reign forever with Jesus. But his enemies, those who will reject Jesus and have him crucified and refuse to listen to him, they are threatened with impending doom and judgment. But notice here, what is so amazing, even as Jesus prophesies of this destruction on Jerusalem, he does it with tears in his eyes. Just as Jesus is a humble king coming on a donkey, so he is a weeping prophet. He isn't coming into Jerusalem ready to slay all of his enemies. Rather, he's weeping over them as he arrives in the city. It says back in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, I long to gather them as a hen gathers its chicks, but they are unwilling. And it's for this reason, because they're unwilling, not because Jesus is unwilling, they are unwilling, that God's judgment is going to come on the city of Jerusalem. So a real important truth right here is that the mercy and the grace of God in Jesus comes before his wrath and his judgment. So as it was in Jesus' day, so it is today before us. Jesus will either be the cause of your salvation, deliverance, and exaltation, or he will be the reason for your downfall and destruction. It's either one or the other. That's what Jesus says. That's what the scripture presents to us. And it all depends on how we respond, how we respond to Jesus as Lord, as King, and his prophet. So with that, we turn to the the last section, verses 45 to 48. Let me read again. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple 
The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So after finally entering into Jerusalem, we see Jesus make his way to the temple. And again, we see Jesus acting as a prophet, this time not so much in what he says, but in what he does. He goes in, finds these money changers and sellers, and he drives them out. Jesus has arrived again, ready to rule as the king of David, David, but the city's not ready. And one of the clearest indications of this is that the temple of God, this place that's to be a house of prayer for all nations, has become a den of robbers. And the den here means a cave. So the temple of the Lord has become a hideout for criminals. The very place where Israel's eternal, true and living God dwells in unapproachable glory, priests could only go in once a year, has become the center of corruption in the city of Jerusalem and in the nation of Israel. Right? The Jewish leaders and others, they've taken all that God has given to them in the Old Testament and the law and their practices, and they've turned it into a business to get rich in the name of God and to increase their power and to push others down. And Jesus is showing up as Lord, as King, and as prophet, and he will have none of it. He drives them out, and in so doing, he seals his fate, right? He will die. He must die, is what they're saying. So everything is coming to a head, and the result is going to be Jesus' death. And then, 40 years later, the destruction of Jerusalem. So, in closing this up, Jesus is standing before us today, as he did Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, and he stands before us as a sovereign Lord, as a humble king, and as a weeping prophet. As a prophet, he's calling you to turn from your rebellion against God and God's rule. He's calling you with tears in your eyes, not wishing that any should perish in judgment. He's calling you to turn to him. He's a humble king, one who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for you, for your sins. There is no ruler like Jesus. He is all-powerful and yet gentle, lowly of heart. He's the only king worthy of ultimate praise and adoration. And lastly, Jesus stands before us as our sovereign Lord, calls us to trust in him as we pick up our crosses and follow after him into our own journey to Jerusalem. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, our Lord, our King, our prophet. And Lord, we pray, Lord, would you open our eyes to see him all the more clearly? Would you open our ears to hear his voice all the more? And Lord, most of all, would you open up our hearts to receive him? 
to receive his words, his hard words that call us to repent, but also to receive the forgiveness that he offers in his blood. Lord, help us increase our faith, strengthen our faith that we might all the more trust in Jesus as Lord and press on and persevere in the race that you've set before us. Lord, we ask for your help. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.